A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc, podcasting and chopping. Night chopping? <laughs> it's it's like afternoon, late evening chopping. Yeah, I, I, I'm chopping up the cauliflower for the family while we while we record. Hey, so okay. listeners, yeah. uh, uh-huh. all... 5,500 of you subscribers, at least. Thanks. (laughs) You're awesome. Yeah. Um, And as a bonus, I'm actually going to try and remember to start updating the Patreon page with, I would say, more frequency. But let's just call it what it is and say, at all. (laughs) Yay for at all. And one of the first things will be a behind-the-scenes conversation by Dr. Santosh and myself about night chopping. Right now, if the curiosity is just burning into your brain going, what the hell is night? Now you're just going to have to become a patron and then you'll get to find out. And we'll thank the hell out of you. Santosh, you know what we haven't done for a while? Go parachuting off the Sierra Nevadas. No pinky. Are are you referring to one of our most famous series? I am. Our ongoing, since the beginning, bi-monthly segment, or whatever I'm calling it this time, another (laughs) Journal Club! Yay! Secretly, I hope that everyone in the audience also does Kermit arms whenever they hear us cheer. Yeah, like in the middle of like a train or a bus, you know, with with the podcast going on in their ears, so nobody else hears what's going on, but they just... All of a sudden, do Kermit arms yeah. in the middle of a bus. 
And then maybe start, starts like a whole wave of Kermit arms. That would oh make me gosh, so happy. Oh my gosh, it'd be wonderful. This week, the theme of the Journal Club is going to be a little bit of freestyle, a little bit of improv, a little bit of off the cuff. And these stories will be new this week, okay. not only to you, dear listeners, but also Santosh. We're all going <laughs> to go on this journey together. It is the Listen. Uber pool of podcasts. And at the end, we can promise that you'll get to your destination like in one Exactly. Piece. And hopefully you'll rate us five stars. Boy, oh boy, that came around quick. <laughs> Shameful, <laughs> but necessary. So let's get to it. The very first story is... From the syndicated blog of Bill Gates during one of his Mosquito Week posts. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, this is one of the big, big uh, missions of the Gates Foundation is to eliminate vector-borne diseases um, with kind of malaria as the poster boy of, of all of these horrible, horrible dredges uh, that, are, that are killing humans. Here is the first headline. Here's what caught my attention. How genetically edited double sex mosquitoes could save millions of lives. And I thought... <laughs> Just in time for Pride Week. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> Pride Sorry. month. <laughs> double sex mosquitoes. Let's see where this goes. Let's talk about what it means to be a double sex mosquito. And actually, Santosh, this is a story about a gene drive. Now, are you familiar with gene drives? Essentially, you use either a a chemical or a drug. um, And then you have a gene set on an on off switch, um, kind of in response to that drug. You're on on the general path, but we're going to add in a new tool to this. The gene drive is now going to be used with CRISPR, everybody's favorite gene editing technique, to rewrite the rules of inheritance. A gene drive, normally for any given gene, there's about a 50% chance that a parent with that gene will pass it on to a child. We all learned that back in high school biology with those, you know, Gregor Mendel's square charts. Yeah, this is autosomal, you know, genes, single gene inheritance, you know, the the most basic... model of it that's random chance but with a gene drive you can ensure that the odds of a specific gene being passed on go up to a hundred percent oh so this isn't like drug driven genes this is actually driving the genes to where they need to from a driving this dna standpoint so the idea is you give a few mosquitoes and in a lab an edited gene one of these gene drives that inserts or drives okay. itself into every one of their offspring. And then when and then you release them into the wild. And when those mosquitoes mate with wild mosquitoes, all their children will have an edited gene. And over time, it makes its way through the entire population. This has been done before without CRISPR by uh, mosquito factories in Brazil. Here's what CRISPR is adding to the mix. One colorfully named gene is the X shredder. I, I love it. So this this gene is there to actually destroy right. the X So the sex of a mosquito, just like the sex yeah. of a human, is determined by sex chromosomes from the parents. X for female, Y for mm-hmm. male. Two Xs is a girl, and X right. and a Y is a boy. So this is one uh, set of sex chromosomes that we actually share in common with the mosquito. By the way, not all animals have this method of sexual determination. So in one example, they edited CRISPR so that it shreds the X chromosomes in the sperm, which means males are only giving birth to males. 
Well, after a couple generations of mosquitoes, that means there's simply nobody around to breed with since only the female mosquitoes lay eggs, and therefore you eliminate all mosquitoes from an area. Ta-da! Well, again, we we've, we've seen this work. This is what mosquito factories are doing with single gene editing. The the truth of the matter is that we've been able to drive genes at rates in the high 90s percent, but for one reason or another, um, you know, wild type traits still seem to pop back up. And, you know, if you don't regularly re-release the mosquitoes that, you know, that have the gene or whatever that you want to follow, we don't fully understand why, but things start to revert back to wild type in the population, um, you know, after just some time, unless you really get. So in an effort to achieve that, the double sex gene was made by Imperial College at London, and they found that females with edited double sex genes develop a mix of male and female organs, including male genitalia and a proboscis or needle nose too flimsy to break human skin. It's flaccid, it's impotent, and this mosquito (laughs) can't reproduce. So the population shrinks and they can't take a blood meal so they won't spread the parasite. As just an added bonus for cruelty to the mosquito, if it can't take in enough blood, not only can it not feed its eggs, but it really can't feed itself very well. So eventually it'll starve and die. The males are just carriers in this case. So that gene drive will pass it on to their offspring, which means every female mosquito essentially dies out within a generation or two. As long as the uh, the pressure keeps up and not enough wild type, you know, non-gene drive mosquitoes are introduced into that so population. That the next step in this is to expand and deal with some of the ethical questions that the board is going to ask you. Like most mosquitoes don't respect borders. <laughs> I mean, look, look, I'm sure there's a few civic minded ones. No, no, it's a, like a, like, no, no, it's a, like a, like a teeny tiny customs office. <laughs> Where's your passport? <laughs> are you here? Are you here on business for pleasure? Business so neighboring pleasure. countries probably uh, need to agree on the rules surrounding the use of CRISPR edited mosquitoes. Everyone has to be on board with this. So far, the only place this has generally been tested large scale was Burkina Faso, where they agreed to allow the release of some of these sterile mosquitoes into the wild so reachers could begin to study it outside of a lab. Yeah. And, and you know, this is very important. Uh, this is you're performing biological and environmental reshaping of a particular area and you know when it when we talk about you know political borders we talk about people that are involved you know individual groups or tribes we should really really be sensitive and be careful about you know how we're handling these things because it's uh, i think josh the the equivalent is the same as like utilizing a chemical in that area Um, Exactly. And And that is going to come into play with our next two stories. So we're going to move on to story number two. Tell the audience. Tell the folks at home. (laughs) Oh, oh, you gave me a two-word prompt for, uh, yeah. What I did on this week's show notes for you. Oh, for the love (laughs) of Pete. it, It just says, like, fungicide mosquitoes. And I'm sure that's, you know... A, that's either a really cool story or it's the name of your next rock band. I don't know. Thank you, Cleveland. So what if I... (laughs) We are fungicide. (laughs) Skeeters. Yeah. What if I were to tell you that a genetically modified organism could wipe out 99% 
of malaria carrying mosquitoes? Uh, I would say that it's too good to be true. What if I told you that that genetically modified organism was a fungus? <laughs> That's very believable. Okay. Burkina Faso is essentially mosquito death Disneyland. They are conducting all sorts yes. of crazy fun ways to eliminate. So another study that we're going to talk about was conducted inside a mosquito sphere, which I kind of think of like as biodome, but with a mosquito poly shore. Aw, that'd, that'd be so cute. Probably cuter than the original poly So in a new study, researchers genetically modified a fungus to produce a spider toxin. And we'll get into that in a little bit. And this spider toxin within 45 days had killed 99% of mosquitoes capable of carrying malaria without affecting any other insects. See, now that is, uh, that's the too good to be true part, right? So when you have toxins, which are usually, you know, protein-based you know, they're either going to be neurotoxins usually, or they're going to be hematologic or blood toxins, something to either paralyze or liquefy the animal. Um, it's it's very scary to me when you're promising that something like spider toxin or venom will only affect like one species of animal. That's that's weird. You want yeah. to take a guess? That's Let's that's just weird. say what continent that spider lives on. I'm not even going to limit you to a country. What continent do you think a spider, spider uh, killing toxin? A mosquito killing spider toxin. <laughs> if, if I want a venomous spider that kills with lethal efficiency, I want to go to Australia. So researchers from the University of Maryland in the U.S. and the IRS Research Institute in Burkina Faso so, took the venom of a funnel web spider native to Australia. You can go ahead and Wikipedia that. <laughs> By the way, they're beautiful. Again, Quite Google that. to like an array of animals, isn't it? They <laughs> took this funnel web spider toxin. They lead it into a dummy village in the mosquito sphere. And this dummy village had plants, stagnant sources of water, which meant food sources, homes. You know, it just looked like a little ghost town encapsulated in a double layer of mosquito netting. And they released fungus everywhere they took the fungal spores mixed them with sesame oil and wiped it on cotton sheets you know just how i like to sleep when i go vacationing on fungal smeared sheets okay okay i mean that doesn't sound wonderful but what happened from a starting population of 1500 mosquitoes they got released into this perfect disneyland environment their numbers shot up to oh almost a million just on And within 45 days, mosquitoes who landed on these sheets became exposed to the deadly fungus. Within 45 days, there were only 13 mosquitoes left. So that is a very effective fungus. More impressive, no other insects were infected. No bees. Wow. No gnats. No fleas. (laughs) Okay. So they, but they had to engineer this toxin right so they they actually had to you know take this toxin and modify it a bit so that it was like specific to anopheles mosquitoes and not harming other wildlife or other insect life uh in the immediate area now hey a you took a gene out of one organism and put it into another all right that causes some instabilities and some, you know, problems can happen there. And the second thing is, you know, you mutated it, um, you know, to, to make this toxin. 
Now, the scary thing that I always worry about is you've essentially introduced an invasive species, you know, in order to target another aminal. I always get scared with these, Josh, that, you know, there'll be like a mutation or another mutation. And all of a sudden, this toxin starts affecting things that it... Are you referring to the video game, The Last of Us, just because that had you know, genetically altered fungi turning an entire planet into spore-driven zombies does not mean that a mild genetic tweaking. No, <laughs> no, no, that that's absolutely true. You're right. It doesn't happen that quickly or, or that crazily. But, um, you know, simple off-target effects can happen wherein, um, you know, this, this toxin mutates just enough where it affects other insects that are beneficial or essential to the ecosystem. And all of a sudden now you're killing mosquitoes and other types of essential flies. Um, so, you know, a, a more simple kind of thing. That's kind of Part of the reason this fungus was developed, because, you know, clearly a fungus is not necessarily anybody's first choice for sure. widespread. Fungi need specific conditions to grow. This was done targeted because approximately 75% of wild mosquitoes in the area are insecticide resistant. So this could be a real benefit for uh, agricultural regions. Oh, I, that's really wonderful. Yeah. So it, as long as we don't have, um, you know, and, and that's the other thing that can happen, right? You've, you've engineered a toxin. Now you're selecting out mosquitoes, uh, you know, by killing the ones that are susceptible. But it is possible that you can have like a couple of resistant skeeters around. And if they reproduce, all of a sudden you have resistance. So that's the other side of this. What do you call it? This uh, wrestling, this evolutionary arms race. So one of the things that will help keep this fungus in check is, as I mentioned, fungi require specific conditions to grow, which is moisture, darkness, to a lesser extent, you know, soft soil or cramp space. So it makes it sheets are a perfect growing spot. You want to smear them on the sheets. But once trying to expand out, it doesn't survive long in sunlight. The specific kind of fungus that they chose to alter, which is the Metarizium pingshense. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Metarizium. So Metarizium is a big genus of, of fungi. That that makes a lot of sense. The pingshensi probably refers to where they originally found this particular species of fungus. The fungus itself is a relatively mild fungus. It's very weak to sunlight, so it's unlikely to spread. So they did think at least a little bit about the propensity of this thing to mute. I got to say, I, I did find it. So we've got funnel web spider, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you the funnel web spider... Uh, those toxins, and so they've got uh, uh, the venom of atricotoxins <clears throat> because all these spiders belong to the Atricidae family. These toxins act on sodium channels, right? So sodium channels, which are really important in propagating action potentials or nerve signals. Um, so they open up those sodium channels and cause paralysis that way. Um, the article actually says that um, the strain of metarizium 
uh, Ping Shansei <laughs> was also uh, engineered to express the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency approved calcium activated potassium and voltage gated calcium channel blocker. A good old um, USDA choice ion channels. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, Omega Kappa Hematoxin HV1A oof, under the control of a hemolymph-specific promoter. So they they dumbed this way down and they called this toxin HMP hybrid. And so what it does is it's specifically species. engineered to be an insect-only strain because normally the funnel web spider, as everything in Australia is, is toxic to humans. It'll be really interesting to see where this goes. So the next one, recently, and when I say recently, I mean as late as end of May this year, both Algeria and Argentina have achieved certification of malaria-free status from the World Health Organization. And what that means is they have had interrupted local transmission for at least three consecutive years. Oh, hey, that's a that's a landmark. So, and this is really impressive for Algeria because that's actually the country oh, where the disease hey, was first discovered a, in humans. That's a landmark. It goes straight back to the source to knock it down. I like that. Algeria is where the disease was first discovered in 1880, and it reported indigenous malaria case in 2013, which means all the malaria yeah. that's been showing up has been showing up from travelers from other countries. And they've been able to interrupt any brief outbreaks that those travelers start. Nice. So this takes a lot of infrastructure and public health awareness and work. Um, essentially, you know, when you get <clears throat> someone into the country with malaria, you know, you have to get them quarantined. You have to take care of like, like the local mosquito population, figure out who the person may have been exposed to via mosquitoes and you got to like tamp that down as soon as possible. So you can't get circulation from your traveler to mosquito to other humans, you know, in your local area. And so you got to interrupt every single start of the cycle every time it starts. So that's, I mean, props, that is not an easy thing to do by any stretch. Here's your pub trivia. What was the very first country to be certified malaria free? Uh, uh, so Algeria, Argentina, there's new world, there's old world. I mean, malaria was on, I promise you're not going to know it off the top of your head, man. Just Um, pick, pick an African country. Well, I'll tell you the certificate was given in 1973. 1973. Oh, I'm, I'm purposefully not looking at the article. Pick an African country. Uh, friggin no that one still has malaria that one still has malaria um uh botswana oh well Mauritius. that makes sense yeah yeah that i mean islands are, mm-hmm. are are much easier to contain so i loved the statement though that uh the regional director for algeria the who's regional director for africa definitely was flexing a little with this he said algeria has shown the rest of africa that malaria can be beaten through country leadership, bold action, sound investment, and science. The rest of the continent can learn from this experience. I love this. Just straight. Let's look across to the new world. Argentina was only the second country in the Americas region to be certified malaria-free, and it reported its last local case in 2010. Now, they had a specific goal to eliminate malaria since the 70s. Probably they were jealous of Mauritius. 
of uh, Mauritius. This elimination was done by health workers would spray homes with insecticides. They would, you know, really set a program in place to find it. And in the WHO statement, the director general, Dr. Tedros from Argentina said that countries, the two countries eliminated malaria due to the unwavering commitment and perseverance of their people and leaders. And it serves, the success serves as a model for all countries working to end this disease. Man. I mean, that one's not as braggadocious. That one is more, you know, hey, look at what we've done. You guys can do it too. It's it's fine to be a little braggadocious here as long as you're sharing what you're doing with the rest of the planet so that, you know, you're not just trying to make something within like political borders, you know, eliminate it. You're, you understand that this is a global issue. Well, and, these are these are people yeah. from the WHO, the regional directors in these countries. But just yeah. the way they responded is like, I'm really proud of everybody's hard work and commitment. And the other is like, yeah, we are yeah. the shit. Here, come here. Let us drop some science on you. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm good with it. I genuinely am super, super good with it. You know, this is a win for, uh, you know, it's a win for the public health department, but it's a win for those people who live there in Algeria. And not only that, Josh, um, it's a ripple effect, right? So it's going to be an immediate effect for the countries that border Algeria. Um, and then if you have a, a plan in place, that you can, you know, just take over to another country and say, hey, do this. Now it's just a, it's a massive win for and per, potentially so an entire So counting country. Algeria and Argentina, the nine other countries have been certified within the last decade. And those include the United oh, Arab Emirates yeah. in 2007. So we'll fudge the numbers mm-hmm. just a little there. Uh, Morocco in 2010. Okay. Turkmenistan in 2010, Uh, Armenia in 2011, the Maldives in 2015, Sri Lanka in 2016, Kyrgyzstan in 2016, Paraguay in 2018, and Uzbekistan in 2018. So uh, that's pretty impressive, meaning no new cases of malaria have appeared in at least three years or they haven't been able to transmit. You know, you can still have a visitor that comes in and then they're sick with malaria, but, um, you know, it, it doesn't locally propagate from person to mosquito to person, you know, within the borders of the country. And man, this is a wide array of different like socioeconomic strata and all these kind of things. So it shows, you know, you don't have to have a ton of money or resources. You just have to have some determination and a good plan. And now for something completely different. Let's talk about storing vaccines. All right. Most vaccines are heat sensitive, which means they need to be refrigerated. (laughs) And this is a real problem in keeping vaccines available in countries that have poor Mm -hmm. access to an electrical grid for refrigeration, or even just in transporting vaccines over any kind of distance. Yeah, so uh, a lot the the ones which are the most important here are uh, live vaccines, right? So you actually you need to keep uh, the viruses viable um, for as long as you need them, uh, you know, before you inject them. And then you know the other component vaccines, uh, you know, tetanus, toxoid, and diphtheria, and all these kind of things. Um, you know, you you really do need to you know get them 
into nice stable conditions so that when you warm them up for, you know, just before you deliver it into a human being, the components are all active and properly induce immunity. There have been times where uh, people have said, oh, this vaccine doesn't work. What's wrong? And it turns out that the problem is not the vaccine. The problem is the storage transport of the vaccine, you know, before delivery to the person. So Canadian researchers have now developed, or at least are in the process of testing, a new method that can preserve some of even the most heat sense vaccines with sugar, not refrigeration. It's such an adorably Canadian image. Yay! <laughs> that makes me so <laughs> that makes me so happy. It's like, ah, oh, <laughs> hey, hey, we got to transport this vaccine. Go get me that uh, maple tree over there. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's such an adorably like you know they make their vaccines and then they you know put their tap into the side of a tree and get the sap and you store the vaccine. Yeah, who else would think of that? That was a lot of letters mm-hmm. coming at me without spaces. A few years ago, Sana Jahanshahi Anbuhi is who's now you know one of the study's authors uh, was just staring at some Listerine strips. <laughs> oh, the fresh strips! You remember those, you guys? Give us a shout out if you remember those little tiny rectangular fresh strips, which for a solid half decade everyone had in their pocket at all all times. Just lay it on your tongue like an acid tab and let it fish in your breath without altering your perceptions. <laughs> like an acid. Oh my god! Okay, go ahead. You name me one other I, thing people think of that you place on your tongue that dissolve. just dissolves. I, I can't think of it. <laughs> That's right, I you can't. I can't think of anything. That, and it's the same, like a flat sheet. Like, it's not like a little tab, like a little tablet. It's a sheet, just like, oh, dear. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So there Sana sure. was. Just, you know, staring at Listerine, maybe thinking about acid tabs. Who knows? <laughs> but... Her, and she wondered, she's like, well, that's basically just a thin sheet of sugar called pululin. Okay. So if sugar can protect fragile biological molecules like enzymes, because that's how the Listermints dissolved, Mm -hmm. uh, could it work for other biological components? So teaming up with uh, McMaster University's Vince Leung and Professor Carlos Felipe, they had made a method to that use that same Listerine sugar to form a barrier to keep oxygen away from vaccine molecules. And this is essentially what you're trying to prevent when you're keeping the vaccines cool is uh, a cascade of chemical reactions, um, including oxidization. Um, You know, you have an oxidizer and then it's active at room temperature you know, it starts to break down the protein components of the vaccine. So you want to try to prevent that by keeping them nice and cool. Uh, But yeah, here now, if you've got like the sugar preventing, you know, the, the interface of the vaccine with oxygen, then all of a sudden you don't need the cold anymore. So the vaccines they tested, they added herpes and influenza A vaccines, which are some of the most fragile uh, to a sugar Uh solution. That was then dried into, like I said, I'm just picturing Listerine, but 
it dried right. into a thin film. And then those films, yeah. which were protected from oxygen by the sugar pollulin and were protected from drying out by a second kind of sugar, trehalos. Oh, uh, okay. trehalos. Too yeah. much time playing D&D. Sorry, guys. And yeah. <laughs> uh, And this film was stored at that's 105 yeah no the, yeah that's 101 so that's 101 degrees yeah so they kept him at 40 degrees celsius i mean josh they kept him at 40 degrees celsius for weeks right they really tried to destroy these vaccines then they reconstituted them right like just mm-hmm. you know put them back into a liquid form put them into mice uh, and see if uh, the vaccines protected the mice the way that a fresh vaccine We did. ran these machines. And like We ran these vaccines through the ringer. We did everything to them. We crushed them under tires. We put them in desert yeah. heat. We put them in deep in the Arctic freezer. <laughs> Nothing can crush these. And for the low, low price of only nineteen ninety nine and three easy payments, we will send your mice multiple episodes. Right? This is something, the kind of thing you'd see night shopping. Yeah. I yeah, no, <laughs> just wondered oh, because why that's my favorite. Favorite infomercial accent. accent. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. A lot of those infomercials did have that beautiful southern twang. Um, so yeah, so you had an HSV two vaccine, and then that was a live attenuated vaccine, which, by the way, isn't available to humans. Um, and then we had the uh, influenza A viral vaccine. You know, they did the storage at hot temperatures, three months of storage, and then gave them to the mice and see if the mice, um, you know, mounted an antibody response. This and is not quite ready for well. mass production yet, but in the so like you you could transport these sugar covered vaccines. Uh-huh. all over the world in any temperature. And then when you get there, essentially wash them in a little saline and go straight to injecting. It could still take up to a decade to get this sugar film method perfected. The initial results are really promising. You know, this is feeling more and more like an infomercial is going on, like sugar coating yes. for vaccines and a new special kind of, you know, self-limiting fungus for mosquitoes. This is, this is the <laughs> as seen on TV science right here. This, this really is. And, you know, we should uh, tell all of our listeners, you know, the last couple of stories that we did, they're not yet ready for prime time. Uh, you know, the the fungicide or sorry, the um, the fungus that produces the anophilocidal or mosquitocidal uh, compound. That one was just a small trial. The gene drive is a small trial. Um, the sugar storage of vaccines is just, you know, we're we're. It's the 3 a.m. infomercial science. I like it. it. Yeah. This is like, you know, you try the infomercial. We're we're still at the slap chop stage. Before you can take it on like Shark Tank. (laughs) All right. So for our last one, this started out as improv (laughs) science. Now it's as seen on TV. Oh my God. This thing is so disgusting. I just showed Santosh a picture of what is essentially the next medical technology Pokemon. (laughs) So China. Tiny, uh, <laughs> Chinese giant salamanders, which are the largest oh, living amphibians God. in the world, oh. excrete a goo from their skin yeah. that is that can be used to seal wounds and yes. is on par with at least uh, the majority of medical adhesives currently available. The Band-Aids that you put on, or even the butterfly wow. uh, strips <laughs> that we use to close minor, minor lacerations salamander goo as good or better 
It was. And, um, you know, the study that we're looking at in uh, the journal Advanced Functional Materials, which I absolutely love. Um, so they took the skin secretions of the Chinese giant salamander, um, and then uh, they they kind of made a glue inspired by the uh, properties of this ooze. Um, and it showed, uh, you know, they, they used these adhesive um, on pigs <laughs> and rats. I don't know. If you guys, you guys I accidentally rats. glued a rat to the pig, but look at it go. <laughs> no, no, no. They they were trying to. They, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. They they made a test wound and then uh, they you know pulled the edges of the wound together and then put the adhesive on there and then they were able to close those wounds and induce healing and so um, yeah. Th- but this I love this collaboration because this is. Harvard Medical School, there's Children's, Children's Hospital of Chongqing Medical University and Sichuan University, several other institutions. Um, so this was a genuinely like full-on collaborative paper. And but you didn't say how they made the glue, uh, Santosh, that, and that's the best you know, part. Science. All right, all right. Tell me how they made the – okay, skin secretions of Andreas – Hold on, hold on, hold on. Skin secretion of Andreas Davidianus. <laughs> so, uh, Zhang and his colleagues or got out Sandy. their giant pokeballs, <laughs> threw them at the ground, and said, Chinese giant salamander Andreas Sangati, I choose you. And then they gently scratched the backs of these salamanders <laughs> to trigger mucus secretion. Uh, they gave him a little massage, collected the goo, freeze-dried yeah. it, ground it into a yeah. powder, and then <laughs> mixed it as a glue by mixing it with some water to rehydrate uh-huh. it. And the best part is, as he's making all of this, when someone was interviewing him for this story, he just casually threw out there, I think if you happen to have a giant salamander by your side, putting the mucus directly on the wound should probably work too. You don't have to grind it into a powder. If you happen to have salamanders surrounding you all the time, that might be something to try. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what they were doing in this case was seeing if they could, uh, you know, kind of purify the adhesive stuff and store it and then reconstitute it at a later time. So, but the cool part here and the reason he was saying you could just take the straight mucus, they didn't add anything except for saline to the freeze dried stuff. So it's not like they added anything to change the properties. They just dried it in order to move it to the lab and then reconstituted it with a little bit of saline. Bring along like you do and you get a scratch on your leg. He's saying, oh yeah, if you have salamanders surrounding you all the time, you could try it, but the they're critically yeah. endangered in the wild. So unless you are a salamander farmer... Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you, you know, if we find that this really makes a beautiful biological adhesive, right? Well, well, it does because uh, on the you, rats, they you know, tested it with pigskin bandages. Really they weren't just, you know, gluing. So pigskin bandages, right? it left almost no scar and allowed the hair to regrow almost right. immediately. And again, not a bandage, just the glue with a little bit of pigskin on top to shield it. No scar, didn't cause inflammation, right. and it's renewable. You don't have to kill any salamanders. Right. Just once in a while, you kind of scratch them a little until they 
Scratch them till they goo for you. Scratch them a little bit. Well, this may be a cool way to kind of, you know, save the giant salamanders. Is that, you know, all of a sudden they become like a little cash crop and you could become a salamander farmer. I'm, I just like that uh, Ash Ketchum, Professor Ash Ketchum over here. Is... <laughs> Listen, I just... Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I just I I don't want to have to do this again like I had to do with the X-Men thingy. There were zero pokeballs involved in this story. He chose an animal, he he got it to do a special move and he used the thing it made to essentially attack, well, a wound, but to to it it's a healing potion. He has a salamander healing potion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All that being said, but you know, he didn't put him into a freaking you know weirdo dog fighting ring the way that the he went out, caught one in the wild, and made a healing potion from its special power. Yeah. So this is a support class <laughs> rather than an attack class. All right, you giant nerd. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. Otherwise, I'm gonna all right, out. folks. So... I just want this show to be the very best, the best that ever was. <laughs> Yo, oh, it's fuck you. <laughs> oh, I can't. That's it I for this week. That. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, <laughs> yeah. or financially, links to do that can be found in the show notes, as well as links to all the sources we used in researching this week. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. If you do donate any amount to our Patreon, we'll start throwing little behind-the-scenes and bloopers conversations that we have before and after the recorder is on, and I promise you, they're fun. <laughs> Listen, all you have to do is support our horrible, dumbass jokes. There's no such thing as a terrible pun. They're <laughs> the, all those, equally those are good. In, in, in and of the until next time, as always, happy travels. Love you guys. Bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.